I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. <laughs> This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello, how are you? I'm fine, how are you? I sort of feel like I've returned from Planet Cop. Are you pining for that adjoining corridor that you described in such poetic detail last week? Maybe a little bit. Is it like returning from space? You know, you hear astronauts talking about how not just physically, but mentally, it takes a bit of readjustment is that how you feel post cop i mean yeah jeff bezos and i were having this conversation the other day and you know <laughs> he said cop space said what do you think and i said yeah um no i think it's it's a bit like returning from the low buddy conference but sort of but but sort of slightly more souped up than that you know in a slightly irritating ed way i've sort of been texting various people who were there about let's discuss the next steps and they're like yeah i'm taking a few days off you know, <laughs> you know quite po- eventually quite pointedly in certain cases you know uh somebody sent me a nice message and i was like you know i said i think i need a bit of time off should we chat and he goes yeah after christmas <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> you were thinking a day or two i think it's quite sensible really as you know i find it quite hard to stop and i think it is quite hard because you're on the kind of treadmill and then you try and slow down so that is I find that quite testing. And are you finding that the world outside of COP, you're finding it harder to get people interested in your gigatons? I don't think I mentioned this to you, but I talked on the Ian Dale LBC thing. I started talking about the gigatons and he looked at me as if to say, you know, what planet have you arrived from? (laughs) Uh, But I mean, I did a video on the gigatons, actually, since we spoke with my whiteboard. So you went for the full high-tech special effects then? I went for the full Ross Perot. I feel like I'm the keeper of the gigatons. Do you know what I mean? Maybe you could ask for that to be added to your title now that you're not the, uh, what were you, the, 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 were you shot cop? Uh, hang on. Alex Sharma is president of the cop, yes. And I'm shadow pot cop, yeah. I still am actually shadow pot cop, but he's cop president for another year. So you can still call me Mr. Shadow President if you like. But do you insist on it? I think not in your case. I would have thought especially in my case. No, I think you're you're like So what have you been up to? I do have a follow-up on something that came up the other week. Yeah. Do you remember that uh, somebody from the local council went into my son's school to talk about recycling? And yes, didn't that know who I was, yes. Called Ed, who worked yes. in the parliament, yes. and they'd never yeah. heard of you. Well, and then his yeah. teacher said, maybe it's Ed Balls. Yeah. Well, I, when he came home and told me this, I had to explain to him that your second name is Miliband. So that, that is now in his head, that piece of information. Fast forward to yesterday, I went to pick him up from school and, and he came out. I said, how was your day? And usually it's just, all right, fine. You know what kids are like when you ask yeah. them about the day. But he was full of enthusiasm. And basically, he'd made up a story about going to another planet. And the teacher had asked him to put a grown-up into the story that he went on this journey with. So then she says, so what grown-up have you chosen? And he says, Ed Miliband. Imagine how strange that would have sounded to a teacher with no context. So did he say the, 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 the 
the his classmates laughed, the teacher laughed, everybody laughed. He said that he said everybody laughed, but on further examination, I think a lot of the laughter was coming from the teacher and the classroom assistant. Well, that's good. I featured in Gene's story. Yeah, off off to another planet you went. Planet Cop. I mean, you know, how much is he? How much is he sort of au fait with the cop and it's sort of the gigatons? I haven't got onto the gigatons with him yet, but I've told you that he gets very, he gets really angry about people not saving the planet. The other day, he had a, a boy round on a play date, and we were listening to some music, and the boy was choosing songs, and he said, oh, I listened to this in my mum and dad's car. So Gene then says, what does your car run on? And the, the kid says, oh, a petrol. And then Gene gets really furious and storms off to his bedroom because his friend's family have a petrol car. I mean, that is good. That is, honestly, that is good climate activism. Well, I'm not sure that that level of rage... No, probably is, that's true. Is, ...is necessarily the thing that's going to... Um, Do you think it moves the Overton window one, one five-year-old at a time? I don't think so. Anyway, congratulations on being fictionalised in a five-year-old's story. Uh, now, let's talk about what we're talking about. We have such a corker, don't we, today? Yes, yes. We are really enthusiastic about this. So we, we occasionally dip into history... And we're always struck by the lessons we can learn from history, and as well as lessons we can learn from abroad and things that happen abroad. And we always say, why don't we do more history? And then you said to me the other day, oh, look, post-cop, let's do a little shimmy and uh, let's do some episodes about sort of progressive advance, things, causes that have been fought for and won and, and sort of what lessons we can learn from them. And we're starting with a great place to start, which is the NHS and the creation of the NHS. And we've got three absolutely brilliant experts to talk about it. Sally Sheard, who's a health policy historian. Uh, Nick Timmins, the author who's, who we had on about the beverage report. The author of Five Giants, Biography of the Welfare State. And Jennifer Dixon, Chief Executive of the Health Foundation. And I can promise people it's a great and really illuminating conversation. And I found myself in the conversation really thinking, oh, you know, you, you just learn so much, I think, um, from the past. And this is just... This is the first bite at the cherry of our. We, we won't do it forever. We're not. We're not going to become a history podcast, but but we'll do a few weeks of it, won't we? Yeah, we're having we're having a little shimmy, as Ed said. You're mixing your metaphors. We're shimmying whilst biting a cherry, which is a very seductive mental image that I think we just put in people's minds there. But it's all about how change happens. We hear a lot of ideas, and and these. Uh, these episodes are going to be about how ideas become reality, and we're, we're excited to share that with you. Now, what's your reason to be cheerful? Well, my reason to be cheerful is that we are right. We're in November the 18th as we speak. Um, I am still cold water swimming. It was nine today. Um, but I've got a new hat. Can you describe it to us? Well, it's a more thermal hat. It's a brand, particular brand. I won't name the brand, but it matches my socks and my gloves. And I think the hat is making a difference. I was also listening to the um, Ezra Klein podcast about cryptocurrency while doing the swimming. And that definitely helped. It gave me a sort of third length. So I managed to do sort of, don't try this at home, but I managed to do a good 20 minutes, a bit more maybe. I didn't know you could, although now I'm starting to think, has this cropped up before? I didn't know there was such a thing as underwater headphones. Yeah, they're really good, honestly. It's, I met a chap about two and a half years ago who told me about this, and like the Swim P3 players, he, he calls Oh, them. yeah, this is ringing a bell now. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a spare set, which I've given to Alistair Campbell, because he said he wanted to listen to German podcasts, because he likes learning German or something, but I don't know whether he actually has... Are they built into your hat? No, no, you just sort of put them on. I mean, it's re- honestly, it's really good. Can I just ask, would other people be describing it as a hat? Or is there a different term that, uh, that swimmers would... Okay. You think hat sounds like trilby? Yeah, or like a big foppish thing. Why do I call it a hat? You're right, it's a cap, isn't it? Yeah, but I prefer thinking of you swimming in a hat. Maybe I should swim in a hat. I need all the heat retention I can get. Uh, what's your reason to be cheerful? Well, do you remember you sent me an article from the New York Times a couple of weeks ago about the Peter Jackson Beatles film? Yes. That comes out on Disney Plus this weekend. Right. I am making a, uh, a Beetlejuice special radio program about it. Ah, fantastic. So, I thought you might. Yeah, so, so I, 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 really, um, I re- really wanted to see if I could see some kind of preview of it. And lo and behold, I got an email from the film company inviting me to a, a screening of uh, some of the footage from it, which I was very excited about. 
And have you ever been, I mean, I guess you're not in this world, but there, there are media screenings of things where it's usually a small 40-seater cinema and maybe it's like you, Mark Kermode, someone from the Daily Telegraph, just in a, a, a darkened room. It's really kind of you to invite me. I'm just not sure I'm going to be free. So I get one of these invitations and I think, oh, that's great. It was at seven o'clock on Wednesday night. So I'm still at home at six o'clock. I'm giving Gene his tea. I'm wearing my corduroy trousers. I'm dribbling his food all down myself. I've got a scruffy woolly jumper on. And then at the last possible minute, I leave to go and watch this review screening. I turn up. It's not a review screening. It's the premiere. In attendance is everybody from Paul McCartney down through your Elvis Costellos, Noel Gallagher's. And I have turned up looking like I'm about to do a bit of light gardening. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that is hilarious. What did you do? As soon as the lights went up at the end, I bolted out of there because I was so ashamed. Was it like a red carpet? Yeah, absolutely it was. Yeah, I knew something was up when I arrived and I could see all the flashbulbs going off and I thought, oh, I've misjudged this horribly. That is hilarious, Jeff. But the film is extraordinary. This show does 100 minutes of it. It's, it's going to be a three-part series on Disney+. And it's, it's, it exceeds all expectations. It's just wonderful. There's so much joy in it. Even I, who's a sort of cultural ignoramus, thought it looked really good, when, which is yeah. why I sent you the article. That is, yeah. honestly, that is quite hilarious. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. So to help us understand the origins of the idea of universal healthcare in this country and how it came about uh, and how the support was built, political, medical, public, uh, to turn it into the NHS, we we have three uh, brilliant guests. uh, Sally Sheard, who's a health policy historian and analyst at the University of Liverpool. And she also wrote and presented a 20-part series on the NHS uh, for BBC Radio 4, which I can highly uh, recommend. Uh, hi, Sally. Hi, Ed. Um, secondly, we um, welcome back, um, and so that makes him a friend of the pod. I mean, you're all friends of the pod, uh, but the author of The Five Giants, a biography of the welfare state, a brilliant biography, Nick Timmons, uh, who who really had us mesmerised on an episode on The Beverage Report a while ago. Hi, Nick. Hi, good to see you. And then also, uh, I'm really pleased that we've got with us Jennifer Dixon. Jennifer is Chief Executive of the Health Foundation, which is an independent charity focusing on health and healthcare here in the UK. Hello, Jennifer. Hi, Ed. So I was thinking that we can be guilty of having an overly simplified version of this story, which is that in the early 20th century, it was all grimy charity hospitals and scarlet fever sanatoriums. If you were poor, well, the, the, the wealthy could consult with any number of physicians for the, for the various ailments. And then along came the beverage report, which woke people up to the need for a welfare state. Then comes along the Second World War which necessitates a rebuilding and, and this uh, sense of solidarity. Then we get Nye Bevan with the NHS. And Sally, I think that is uh, pretty inaccurate as it goes. So I wondered if as a way of understanding healthcare in this country pre-NHS, Sally, if I could ask you, if, if my granddad who worked in a paper mill, for example, had, say, tonsillitis in 1935, what, what would he have done? So your granddad, I would imagine working in a paper mill, working class, he would have been paying his national insurance contribution. So therefore, he would have had access to what was called a panel doctor. He could go along, get a basic diagnosis, and depending on what treatment he needed for his tonsillitis, although there weren't antibiotics then, so there's not a lot they could do for him, he would get some form of basic treatment. But if he needed anything more complicated... That was at the mercy of whether he could be persuaded to be taken into a municipal hospital. You mentioned national insurance contribution there. Now, that was introduced by Lloyd George in 1911. Can you just remind us what that was and what it entitled people to? That was part of a liberal government set of reforms, almost like an embryonic welfare state that acknowledged that you had to look after people's health in the round and have services that began to go a little bit further than those very basic provisions that you could access through the poor law. So Lloyd George put in place a whole series of policies uh, that began to really provide that safety net for everybody in society. However, the panel doctor system 
only really covered people who worked, working men who paid into the scheme. So there were some considerable limitations to that scheme. I was going to ask, so Sally, if it was Jeff's grandmother or Jeff's grandmother and grandfather's kids, presumably they would have had a worse deal in 1935 than Jeff's grandfather, yeah? Oh, yeah. They would have had to have been seen privately. So depending on what conditions that they had. Uh, And there were some voluntary hospitals, there were some charitable services that would have given them access to care. But it it relied on the individual family to come up with those fees from their own money. And what if we go back further? When are the first stirrings of the idea that the state has a responsibility for its citizens' health? In the 19th century, it was the state's interest in promoting population health, particularly in response to infectious diseases such as cholera and smallpox, that motivated it to go beyond that traditional laissez-faire attitude that everybody takes their own responsibility for their own health and to begin to think about how you could put in some really basic services. And it's linked implicitly in with poverty. So Edwin Chadwick, classic civil servant from the 1830s, worked out that there was a quite a considerable cost to ill health that was linked to poverty and therefore it would be appropriate to have a poor law, a welfare state system that also included some really basic medical care. But you could only access that if you were institutionalised, if you went into a workhouse. And from that early point, it was then a sort of thin end of the wedge so that the state thought, oh, well, actually, it'd be really quite good if we could then isolate people who get infectious diseases So we get the introduction of isolation hospitals from the 1860s. And we go through the 20th to 19th century, there are more and more innovation. But it's a very gradual, it's an evolution, not a revolution. Nick, let's come to you. Talk us through your sort of helicopter view of the kind of evolution of the NHS. Well, the earliest call that there should be a state medical service or a public medical service is usually attributed to Beatrice Webb in the minority report of the 1909 Poor Law Commission. And then after that, there were just loads of reports. I mean, by the time you get to 1948, this was an idea whose time had come, uh, and it had taken about 40 years to get there. So Sally's referred to the voluntary hospitals. They existed on gifts and endowments initially, and the consultants who worked in them charged the better off and gave their services to the less well-off free or on a means-tested basis. And at the end of the 19th century, about 90% of their income came from gifts and endowments. But medicine was advancing even then and getting more expensive. And by the 30s, only about a third of their income was coming that way. And they, a lot of them were bankrupt. They were bust. And so there were Saturday you know, flag days, begging bowls on the wards. And leading figures in the big voluntary hospitals were, you know, some, some of them were arguing that there had to be a state service. And then, as Jeff said earlier, we get the war, and that produces the emergency medical service, which was there to treat people who were bombed out, injured in bombing, there to treat the troops. And that ended up with a 62-page booklet of who was eligible for free treatment, to the point where it might have been easier to produce a much shorter one that said who wasn't eligible. So the emergency medical service sort of showed that the state could run a healthcare system. So all these factors built up uh, until you get to... The coalition white paper of 1944. So you have a conservative minister, Henry Woolink, in the coalition producing a white paper. This and, is after Beveridge, Nick, yeah? Oh, yeah, we get you know, Beveridge pops up in 1942. And one of his assumptions is that there will be a National Health Service free at the point of use without charge at any time. So that gives the idea another big push. Though it's not the case that Beveridge designed the NHS. He didn't. He just sort of said there had to be an NHS. And so you get to this white paper of Willinks in 44. And you know, it's worth quoting the opening paragraph because it's, it's sort of both noble and crystal clear. Because it's irrespective of means, age, sex or occupation, shall have equal opportunity to benefit from the best and most up-to-date medical and allied services available. And it says that the service will be comprehensive and free of charge. So by the time we get to 1944, this is Conservative Minister, it's pretty clear there is going to be a national health service. And, and and just let me just stop you there. So before we get to sort of when it did happen, let's just talk a little yeah. bit about when it didn't happen. <laughs> so just talk to us a little bit 
um, Nick, first of all, about the 1920s and 30s. I mean, we had a Labour government in 1924, we had a Labour government in 1929. Why didn't it happen earlier? Uh, because I think people couldn't be- be- even begin to agree about how it should operate. So you can sort of say this is the right concept, but how are you going to do it? And, you know, there are the municipal hospitals on the one side and the voluntaries on the other, and they were kind of at war with each other. Uh, GPs earn most of their money from private practice, not from income from the panel doctors. Uh, consultants earn all their money from charging private patients. So there were a lot of very, very vested interests that made devising how a national health service would work, as opposed to the principled idea that they should be one, very difficult. And, and what would the sort of equivalent of me be saying, you know, when confronted with this? Would Labour be saying, yes, we want to do this, but we need to get into government with a majority? Or would they be saying, oh, it's all quite complicated? And what would the Conservatives have been saying? Well, certainly everyone would be saying it's complicated. Um, I mean, I mean, as far as I'm aware, there were no legislative proposals in the 30s for this. It was the, you know, just the idea growing. And, and you know, we mentioned some of the things that sort of finally kicked it into life, which did include beverage. I think also, I mean, there had been quite an, a useful report produced by Dawson in, in 1921, which was this hierarchical system, geographically based system of you know, primary health care, secondary health care. It's the first time those concepts are really articulated, that you need lots of little small places where people can go to get gatekeeper services, assess what's wrong with them, then they get referred up to secondary health care systems if they need treatment. But I think what really put the, the brakes on was that worldwide inter, international recession that happened. And the, the 1930s were a time of incredible restrictions in terms of what both central government could do, but also what local government could do. It's the heyday of public health, really, that interwar period. So we've got very successful medical officers of health, the equivalent of our directors of public health now, who had these mini empires. They were in charge of really large municipal hospitals, preventative services, STI clinics, welfare services. And that was not within the control of national government. That was outside of Whitehall. And I think that was a politically difficult situation to manage. So the the thought of giving a completely nationalised, universal healthcare system, to put it under local government management was something that perhaps politically was a debate too far until they'd had the experience of the emergency medical service in the Second World War. Sally's dead right about that, because the voluntary hospitals would vigorously resisted any idea that they should be taken over and run by local government. Uh, And GPs were determined not to be salaried civil servants, members of the state. So you've got all these different vested interests and different structures all pulling in different directions. It seems like there was this consensus that some kind of service was needed. So were the arguments about what shape it should take rather than its, its, its very existence? Well, yes, but, you know, sorting out the shape was not easy, as Ben discovered. Could you look to what was happening in other countries and and see uh, what embryonic forms of national health care were emerging, or was there no good equivalent? New Zealand can probably claim to be the first country to have something recognisable as a national health service. So, you know, it can claim to predate the NHS. But back then and even now, it wasn't a completely comprehensive free at the point of view service because patients back then and still do pay to see the GP. And you know, continental countries had various levels of social insurance scheme for health before the Second World War. But they, just as we set up the NHS, they became much larger and much more comprehensive afterwards. We plagiarised the, the Bismarckian German system in you know, the Lloyd George scheme. We'd been looking to what the Germans had been doing in, in the 1880s. And they'd had a very effective social insurance funded system. And Sally, in terms of public opinion, so we're, we're hearing about the discussions that are going on in the medical profession, the political conversations. Where was your average member of the public on this? Of course, now it seems the most obvious thing to us. It's, the NHS is this beloved institution. What kind of oppositions were the public raising to it? 
I don't think people thought about their health unless they were in ill health, unless they had a some condition that they needed to get treatment for. It's a hard thing to, to motivate politically unless you've got real immediate demand for it. I mean, the reality was lots of people did have health demands, but our expectations of what good health looked like, what we would put up with, was considerably higher. People lived with chronic health conditions. We had people with, you know, hernias, high blood pressure, poor eyesight, poor hearing. Um, They would go for years without going and paying to see a a practitioner to get a diagnosis because they knew that they couldn't probably afford the, the treatment that would have to go with that. So people put up with a lot more ill health. But getting that to be a political motivation, I think, is is really quite difficult. Forgive me for a naive question, Sally, but I mean, people must have been literally dying from being able to unable to afford treatment, presumably. Yeah, but that that was just life, wasn't it, Ed? You know, it was nasty, brutish, and short, or whatever that classic phrase is. When I made the Radio Four series, one of the, the first episodes, we went to uh, a cemetery in South London. And we looked around, we went to the section where people were being buried in the 1910s, 1920s, and we just looked at the ages on the gravestones. And it's it's just devastating. We've got children, we've got teenagers routinely being buried in the 1920s. People were dying from things that they really shouldn't have been dying from at that time. And, and was it the political discussion and the reports that we've been talking about? And the last time we talked to Nick, he, he told us stories about people queuing around the, the block to get their hands on copies of the beverage report, which seems unthinkable today that there'd be that level of interest from the public in a report. <laughs> Just like my 2015 manifesto, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> but was, was it those reports that shifted public expectations? The beverage report was exceptional. I mean, was it Nick? 700,000 copies? Yes, 600,000. It was just phenomenal. I mean, you know, there's, there's never been, sorry, Ed, but there's never been a report quite like it. But there weren't many reports like that. There's certainly nothing I can think of pre-beverage. And is media important? Because, of course, there was, uh, television was in its infancy. The, the radio was BBC, so definitely wouldn't have had an opinion. Is, is the press advocating for the introduction of a health service? Sure. I mean, on, with, in, in different ways and in different forms. Uh, there were more left-wing newspapers then than there are now, and they would have been pushing the case. But, you know, du- during the war, the Times, which traditionally been a terribly stuffy conservative newspaper, actually became very liberal. You know, it supported the beverage report. So there was a shift of mood. The other people that Joe Public would talk to would, would be the doctors. And there was a lot of opposition from the medical profession to a state-organised service. There was there, there was almost you know, scaremongering going on, and the, and the medical profession ran their own publicity campaigns, saying, you know, if we move to a national health service, you will lose that friendly doctor who knows you, knows your family. There were plenty of doctors advocating for a state medical service. The BMA itself produced a report arguing for one. Um, when would that have been, Nick? That was in the 30s. You know, this huge battle over the foundation of the NHS actually took place when somebody actually sat down and said, we are going to found an NHS. Here it is. I think by by the end of the 30s, there's a recognition that certainly the, the private sector of, of the healthcare economy is no longer fit for purpose. And in the war... It has this amazing ability to expose people's ill health, partly through the evacuation services, where you've got you know children being moved out of the cities, going to live in rural areas with affluent families who have, for the first time, evidence in front of them of what rickets looks like. That is a really powerful movement. I think also that fact that people now, when they haven't got the war casualties coming through from the bombing that they had expected, and then they can now start using those beds that they'd reserved for civilian chronic health issues, it just makes people realise that, yeah, this is something that we can do. We can do collectively And then you put that together with Beveridge and his vision, and it becomes one of those integral parts of of what a civilised society should do. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So, so Nick, let's come on to the Labour government of 1945. How important in your view was the promise of an NHS to Labour's victory? Well, I think that's very hard to say. It clearly played a part. It was by no means the biggest issue during the election campaign. The biggest issue was housing, because so many houses had been destroyed or damaged in the war. But, yeah, it's founding the National Health Service is Labour's great achievement. But it was not solely Labour's idea. And Sally, if if we look at those three years, and it's, it's pretty much exactly three years from when Attlee wins the election in 1945 to the opening of the first NHS hospital, Public support and enrolment by the point of launch is over 90%. I think it's 94% is the number I've got in my head. I, I know this is a bit potted history, but what, what are the key events in that timeline? And does it, does it always look like it's going to fly during those three years? No, it looks like it's on the point of failure up to about six weeks before the appointed date of 5th of July 1948. And that's because the medical profession only came on board. I think it was the third attempt. The BMA polled their members and uh, they polled them in February 1948. So 56,000 doctors in the UK, 85% of them voted not to join a National Health Service. And it it took the most enormous effort guile, expertise of Bevan to to divide the medical profession. And he first attacked, or didn't attack, he he first persuaded, let's put it that way, the hospital consultants. And he offered them a number of concessions to join an NHS, uh, the the sort of the most keen ones that he he later summarised. He said, I stuffed their mouths with gold to come on board. And what he meant by that was he allowed them concessions like keeping their option to see private patients. They could do that either in their consulting rooms or they could do it in nationalised hospitals. Uh, And that really went a long way to addressing their fears that they were going to be completely under the control of the state. And then he worked on the GPs separately and he said, well, you can have independent status, you can have a contract that you can come back and you can renegotiate it. You can basically keep it as a business, general practice as a business. I mean, what would have happened if the GPs hadn't come on board? There wouldn't have been an NHS, but but Bevan, I've no doubt Bevan remembered his history. Because if you go back to the 1911 introduction of the panel doctor, uh, the BMA was totally against that and held big plebiscites and said it wouldn't take part. And what actually happened was when it got closer to that version of the appointed day, doctors started signing up. Uh, and so... Other doctors became very worried that if they didn't sign up, they'd lose their patients. And something very similar happened in 1948. Bevan held his nerve. So the negotiations are still going on with the medical profession, but the, the public must have had some expectation by this stage that the NHS was coming. You've got this uh, huge 
enrolment. Were, were the doctors kind of painted into a corner regardless? A little bit. I mean, they'd been doing a lot of um, leafleting. People were sent a leaflet saying, you know, the NHS is going to start. This is what it's going to look like. Uh, they'd been trailing this really from, from beverage onwards. It was one of the, the big morale factors in the Second World War. You, you had troops hearing about this idea for a national health service and saying, you know, when the war ends, we're going to be great. People are going to look after us properly for the first time. So there was that incredible public expectation that they would no longer have to have that pot of money in case of unexpected medical bills. And Nick, there are these competing forces here. There's the sort of social forces, the the impact of the war, and there's also the role of individuals in this. Obviously, Nye Bevan is the person we most associate with the birth of the NHS. How important is he? Why is he so important? Would it have happened if somebody else had beaten the Minister for Health? Would it have happened in a different way? What, what, what's your thoughts on that? Quite possibly not. I mean, it was his decision to nationalise the hospitals. And in a sense, that cut the Gordian knot because it, it, whilst it bitterly upset both the voluntary hospitals and municipal hospitals, it did mean that neither one out against the other. Just on that point, would it have been controversial with Labour local authorities, for example? Oh, yeah, yeah. Local government didn't like it. Uh, they were losing a lot of power. And indeed, it's interesting that you know, there were bits of the service, like maternity, the school service, the ambulance service, that were left behind with local government, partly to sort of compromise to let them keep something. And it was those services that were not brought into the NHS until 1974. And Nick, why was he so convinced? I understand why he'd be convinced about maybe the private hospitals or the, the voluntary hospitals, but, but why was he so convinced about the, the whole thing couldn't be run by local government? Yeah, because you'd never have got the voluntary hospitals to agree to anything like that. There'd have been just a standoff. I see. Did he then very skillfully negotiate this or navigate his way through this argument with the doctors, for example? He did some of it, Ed, but he had some key officials working with him. So the chief medical officer of the day, Wilson Jameson, he was one of the most useful people to Bevan in that he could go to people and do some of that negotiating before they got to the official negotiating table with the BMA. Bevan dominates this history because he's such a force of, of nature and obviously the key player. Are there other unsung heroes? I think another key player is, is John Pater. And the, the Treasury really were remarkably unconcerned about what the NHS was going to cost. Enoch Powell later says when he comes in as health minister, he said it was a, a miscalculation of sublime dimensions because there were no economists in the Ministry of Health at the time. And they'd come up with this crude figure that it was going to cost £170 million a year to run the NHS. And then in the first full year of operation, the actual cost was £402 million. I mean, it seems peanuts, doesn't it, to us now? But at the time, politically, that was explosive as well, because it was, you know, we're coming out of the war, and they're saying, how can we possibly afford this and to rebuild the houses and to re-equip, you know, our armed forces? It, it just seemed a ludicrous thing to some people to have done to make this investment without fully knowing what the costs were going to be. How would that get down in the Treasury in your era, Ed? Yeah, I was going to say, I think the Treasury was slightly more slightly more on the lookout these days. And is it a piece of urban myth or is it true that, that the thought was it would save money over time? No, it was a genuine thought. I'm not quite sure they did any costings, but they did acknowledge that lots of people had these unmet needs and that there might be an excessive demand maybe for the first couple of years. And they did see people queuing, you know, women in particular, because they'd been the ones who'd been putting their own health on the back burner uh, because they couldn't afford it. They did see people queuing to get treatment, to get free glasses, free dentures. But they had expected some of that demand to then ease off once the service was fully operational and running smoothly. But they, I think, you know, meeting demand has always been an issue for the NHS. Once it was up and running and obviously a very successful launch, was there any suggestion that it should be unmade or, or did opposition evaporate pretty quickly? It's a constant theme from day one and it is articulated quite clearly in 
the early 1950s. So they decide that they can't keep that fundamental principle that Bevan holds so dear that everything is free at the point of delivery. And the first thing that goes is free dentures and glasses and then free prescriptions. So they decide that they will have to get the public to contribute part of the cost for glasses and prescriptions. And then they decide that they will charge people a shilling for every prescription. And that's partly what pushes Bevan out of government. He actually resigns in 1951 in opposition. And then the following year, the government decide, well, maybe we do need to actually have a look at what the NHS is costing. And they commission a review from a a Cambridge economist called Claude Gillibode. And he has the great fortune to employ one of the most brilliant economists of the 20th century, Brian Abel Smith. And it's Abel Smith working with Richard Titmus at the London School of Economics that proves that the NHS is actually really good value for money. And it needs more investment, not less But that's not the news that the Conservative government want to hear when the report is produced in 1956. And Sally, as you look at the period then since the 1950s, are there particular moments in the history of the NHS that you would sort of pick out as kind of key moments of change, improvement, regression, and sort of what what lessons do you learn from them? Well, the, 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 the first really big one was when Enoch Powell became Minister of Health. Powell did a deal with the Treasury uh, where he switched more of the funding to national insurance and away from general taxation, and he raised prescription charges and other charges. But in return, he got the great hospital building plan, which was to build 100 new hospitals and refurbish. I can't remember how many more, but an awful lot of them. Uh, and there was a 10-year plan to do something. And there had been almost no hospital building at all between 1948 and 1963. So that was an absolute turning point. Uh, and at the same time, it was Powell who announced the closure of the giant Victoria lunatic asylums. Now, it took 35 years to do that, but his was the great political speech that set, you know, set them going. You know, these are the institutions we must put on the funeral pyre, he said. You don't get political speeches like that these days very often. Uh, so that was the first really big turning point. And Sally, which ones would you pick out? I would add into that mix uh, the approval of the contraceptive pill in 1961, although only if women pay for it and through family planning clinics. And initially, only if they were married. Oh, yeah, only if they were married. That changed quite quickly. I'd pick the the slow movement towards professionalising general practice. So having a new contract for GPs, beginning to support them to move into purpose-built premises, the end of the single-handed GP working out of his front room with his wife acting as his secretary and and dog's body. I think those those two things for me are, are, are really important. What actually drives the NHS is medical advance. You know, it's the fact that more stuff can be done and done better. Uh, and it's things like computerization. It's kind of big secular trends that drive it. What causes the political crisis is when it goes through these regular cycles of not having enough money and then suddenly getting a lot more money and going a decade later not having enough money and just goes around. It's, it's, just, it's just a cycle. At the very end of the 1990s, early 2000s, the NHS was in a pretty parlous state to the point where in 1997 there was actually the budget actually shrank in real terms, I think, for the first time since 1948. Jennifer, what about you in terms of your thinking about what sort of what's driven this the change that we've seen at least over the last few decades? Well, in terms of demand, I think uh, it's pretty much as Nick says, every country's seen increasing demand um, from both people requiring planned surgery, emergencies, chronic disease ageing population. So that's certainly driven it. But there is something called supplier-induced demand. So what is possible is also driving demand and costs. So I think the issue is, is that is a sort of relentless rise upwards. But as Nick said, the funding underpinning the National Health Service is not a smooth upwards incline at all. It's a roller coaster. Jennifer, talk to us a little bit about sort of where things go next. Well, I think everyone's peering through the glass darkly, but we know that there are certain 
elements that we can see now. Um, one is a bigger emphasis on self-care, technologies, digital. I think those are things things that are definitely coming ahead. Uh, and I think the pandemic has shown how much can be done, how much change can happen quite dramatically that actually the patients accept and the clinicians accept um, with respect to no longer so much face-to-face, for example. So I think there's, there's a lot in the future. How the technology is going to play out, we don't know, but we do know that the direction should be towards greater self-care and where that's possible, less cycling in and out of hospitals where that's avoidable. If you think of all those people who are 65 plus reasonably well, but seem to have an outpatient appointment a week or a general practice visit a week, a lot of that could be presumably reduced and made more efficient. Um, so, So I think greater support of people outside of hospital, greater support in social care to try to help older people stay well for longer, I think the issue is, for me, is, is almost bigger, which is how you get there. And I think what I would say here is that in, in the last sort of couple of decades, a lot of the future trying to get more juice out of the NHS, trying to push it forwards, has been around using things like targets, performance management, incentives, regulation, public reporting, Uh, And a focus on kind of leadership. But actually, the future really is not really in those things. It's actually in a kind of meso layer, which is to do with how clinicians are going to take up innovations and test it faster. And how patients are going to be supported to use these technologies to move us forward. And that means a whole different way of thinking about reform than we've had before. So I I think it's not quite so politicised. It's more a technocratic exercise with the public than it is a democratic exercise in the sense using top-down change of the type we've seen through Thatcher, through Blair and and others. One thing that is obviously, and you've mentioned it earlier, is this question of social care and the extent to which this is part of the future vision because, as you you said, the pillar was crumbling and it clearly is in a dire state. Just Nick and Sally, I realise we didn't talk about social care. Why was it not the NHS and social care together? And was that discussed in the 1940s, for example? Well, there was legislation. There was the National Assistance Act, which boldly claimed in its opening sentence to abolish the poor law. Uh, And that's kind of where social care comes from. The reason it was, one of the reasons it was not jointly done, you've got to remember what life expectancy was back in 1948. There were many fewer older people, uh, and the ones that were didn't live as long. And what's partly driven the social care up the particular agenda has been the ageing society. Uh, people live longer, there are more of them, they need more support. So it's grown in salience because, basically because of demographics. Uh, but, oh, but what has also grown with that is the degree to which its presence or absence has a direct impact on NHS services. I really want to talk about the elephant in the room, which is health prevention and health promotion. And when the NHS was set up, part of its mandate was exactly that. It was it was keeping people healthy. What we've had since 1948 has been a national medical service. I would say we've never really had a national health service And I think we need to be honest about that now. And we need to be honest about the amount of money the government is willing to put in to the prevention, the promotion side of health. uh, And look at where that where there are opportunities perhaps to rebalance. But politically, that's never going to be very popular because it takes a long time to invest in health promotion. You don't see the political rewards within a Westminster cycle. But we know that health inequalities have been persistently high. The NHS has not addressed health inequalities adequately. And that includes social care, but it also includes education. It also includes housing. Fundamentally, it includes addressing poverty in the UK. Until we do that, we're never going to have an adequate service. Jennifer, just just to uh, to finish up, and it'd be good to get Sally and, and Nick's thoughts on on this as well. But specifically from you, as somebody who your work is about the future of health and healthcare in this country, when you listen to that history, what are your feelings on what you take from it? Are, are you are you envious of the fact that they got to create something rather than reform and modernise it? 
is it an understanding of really baby steps, how incremental things are? When you think about how this applies to to your work, what do you take from it? I see increasing centralisation over time. Uh, I see a constant political support and public support of the NHS, and that's borne out by many, many surveys. So I see a good platform going forwards. I see that the NHS's structure is very fit for purpose uh, going forwards with respect to controlling costs, to try to get more systematic quality into the system. There's a lot you can do when you've got data that's not fragmented across the system, but joined up. So I see a lot of positivity in the structure of the NHS. What I do think is we've got to get out of this old uh, mindset, which is pretty top down and into the new age, which is much more to do with rapid bottom-up technological development that is rapidly tested and tried. And I think that is more the way of the future than, in a sense, trying to sit astride an elephant and needling it into better performance. Nick, can you give us a, a couple of lines on how, how the history that we've talked about can, can inform the way that the NHS and health in this country go in the future? Yeah, well, partly to reflect on what Jennifer's just said, we go through these cycles of trying to devolve and then pulling it all back into the centre again. And and my view would be ministers should be very careful what they wish for, uh, because if they if they centralise responsibility, they centralise blame. Uh, and and you know, going back to Jennifer's point about needling the elephant, you can't run the NHS from Whitehall. I mean, you just can't. It's too big. You have to try and devolve power and responsibility and levers and action down the area of the front line. Sally, give us your historic, you're welcome to comment on the future vision, but give us your historical reflections to what do we learn from the past about the future? I'm, I'm loath to use that phrase, learning from the past. I think it's very difficult. Historians always get offended when I say this. I'm really <laughs> no, sorry. Not, not at all. Adam Tooze also got offended when I did this as well. Sorry. I, th- I think it's tricky to do, but I think there is an absolute role. There is a need for having historical context in contemporary policymaking partly because institutional memory is so poor that if you go now into government, into Whitehall, they don't necessarily know what they've already tried and they don't know what's worked. And it was Shirley Williams who said to me years ago, she said, um, politician is seen as failed if they rehash an old idea. You have to have new ideas. But actually there is a lot of value in going back and looking at what has been tried and what has worked before. But we haven't got a system in the UK that enables us to do that. We very rarely engage with history at the right point in the policy cycle. And we've seen it with COVID as well. You know, it's always retrospective. It's always after the crash that we say, what could we have done differently? What could we have done better? So I would want to have history routinely in there in policymaking. But that's me as a historian speaking. Well, listen, I sort of feel like we could carry on this conversation for a number of years. Um, but I think, you know, that would, uh, would probably be hard to edit down to 45 minutes. You've been absolutely uh, brilliant, all three of you. I'm really, really grateful to you. So so Sally Sheard and Nick Timmins and Jennifer Dixon, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. You're welcome. Our pleasure. Well, my main thought is how come it's taken us 200 and something episodes to do that episode? Maybe we should pivot to a history format. Is it because neither you nor nor I are historians, do you think? Maybe, but I'm not a policy wonk either, so I haven't even got that excuse. I'd say you've got your policy wonk MA. I'm sort of going to give you a sort of master's in policy wonkery, reasons to be cheerful master's, a bit like sort of Trump University. Okay, so as long as I don't have to set any tests on what I remember from 200 and odd episodes. No, I think it was really interesting. You give me your observations and then I'll... I suppose just a couple of quick things is is one... I know this is a really dull thing to say, but it's about patience. So we'll have somebody come onto the podcast with a great idea and I just think, oh, why can't somebody put that in a manifesto and then implement it? And and what the story of the NHS tells you is it's baby steps, it's incremental, it wasn't just somebody came along with this thing and then it happened over the course of an election. And then the other thing is how beloved and, and a part Completely of the right. national identity Completely right. it became so quickly. I mean, I totally agree with both those points. I mean, just on the first, you know, there they were diddling around in the 1920s and 30s. 
It's not like nobody had thought of it. No. But it just like wasn't happening. I mean, look, it takes a long, long, long time to happen. Now, that isn't meant to say to people, you know, change is always going to take, you know, 40 years between conception and reality. But it was really striking to me. On your second point, you may recall us doing a preview video where I think I said that Titmus had said that services were the poor were poor services and you said was that abby titmus yes i do remember uh, um and i said it was neither abby T- titmus nor fred titmus the cricketer but it was in fact richard titmus the i think he's professor of social policy and the point he was making was that the more universal a service is the more it can command public buy-in i think there is something really striking about the you know went from not being there to being a beloved national institution. I mean, on Nick's account, quite quickly. The, the other thought, which relates to my first point, is Jeff Mulgan, who used to be the head of policy for, I think he was head of policy for Tony Blair, or at least he worked for Tony Blair. He always used to say this thing, which is politicians always overestimate what they can achieve in the short term and underestimate what they can achieve in the long term. Now, I don't know whether Bevan underestimated what he was going to achieve, but if you create an institution, okay, the NHS is pretty exceptional, it can have many, 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 many decades of effect. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. If you've got thoughts about what you've heard on the podcast today and about the history of the NHS and and thoughts on what our guests have been saying, or if you've got an idea for a future episode on a subject that you'd like us to cover, please do email us. You can find us at cheerfulpodcast.com. Uh, this comes from Katie Cross. Hi, wonderful reasons to be cheerful people. I'm the founder of Pledgeball, a research-driven charity that mobilises football fans to tackle climate change. Here is me presenting alongside a partner, Spirit of Football, at the UNFCCC's Action Hub at COP. She, she's she got a video link of that. It's great. It encourages football fans to compete in events like Five Aside, but it's not just football, anything from Pilates to bike fixing. So that's good for you with your Pilates, Jeff. Uh, <laughs> everyone who enters uh, has to make a pledge like use a shampoo bar instead of a bottle, use recycled toilet paper, reduce meat consumption by 50%, wash at 30 degrees, walk or cycle. It's a journey is under two miles. And then there's a league table, and we all like league tables. Um, and Whitehawk FC are top of the league table at, in terms of kilograms of co2 pledged they are at a stonking 212,136 closely followed by charlton at 199,393 followed by bristol city at 143,239 i think they're the top three do you think i could be james alexander gordon was he the guy who would read out the football scores on grandstand because as you were doing that i was instantly transported back to my childhood when my dad would watch that stuff every saturday afternoon i always liked hearing all the names of scottish football clubs they always seemed so much more poetic four far four east five five yep (laughs) uh this comes from erin chrisfield who says ed seems to be disillusioned with the benevolent dictator of the jeffocracy Perhaps a transition to champion or fairy godfather of the Jefftopia is in order. Now, I think Erin um, picks, picks up on something that has been seeping into the podcast, which is you created the Jeffocracy. Let's not forget this was your idea. And, and yet you have been, tr- I think, trying to destroy it for some time now. No, I, I, I don't know whether I did create the Jeffocracy. Did I really? Yes, 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 you did. It was, it was entirely of your making. Well, that bit might be true. Well, maybe the other bit's true too. I basically just got jealous. I sort of think I should have created the edocracy. <laughs> I just thought it was a sort of terrible mistake I made. <laughs> Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Well, here we are in the outro. We are. What's uh, what's the next few days hold for you? I think a bit of sort of downtime, really. I mean, I'm so bad at downtime, Jeff. I'm like a sort of car that's sort of still running, not a petrol car, an electric car. Do you know what I mean? I just find it so hard to detach and take time off. Here's something you're good at that I don't think we've talked about much on the podcast. When you when you do your summer holiday, I'm good at that. Your phone goes yeah. off. Now you do end up using Justine's phone more than you probably well, should. I'm quite good at cold turkey, but I'm not very good at 
you know, moderate turkey. <laughs> the problem is it's sort of politics can expand to fill every available waking hour, you know what I mean? Yes, but you let it, it's like a goldfish growing to whatever size tank or pond it's in. You've got to draw some boundaries, haven't you? You think I'm a goldfish? You've, you've got a slight goldfish-like quality. Why is life like a goldfish? Um, let me thank Sally Sheard, Nick Timmins and Jennifer Dixon. Our podcast this week has been produced by Emma Corsham with Gareth Evans from 1860, who's uh, working with us on this series that we fight this little shimmy that we're doing. And he's been brilliant. Uh, yes, yeah, so thanks to Gareth. We say hurrah for Gareth. Hurrah. Hang on, hang on. Joel Pierce used to do our backup and research. <laughs> And look, we're fine without him. Yeah, I think that's a bit rude. I'm going through the stages of grief and maybe I'm at anger at the moment and you're in acceptance. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer, Ed Seed, composed the music, James Deacon made our IE dents and our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been doing a shimmy. He's been doing a swimmy. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM.